Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 129 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Carol Walker. For more than 20 years, Carol was a political correspondent at the BBC, covering some of the biggest political stories in recent history, including six general elections, the EU referendum, the rise and fall of Conservative, Labour and coalition governments, resignations, rows and more. And today, Carol presents a show on Times Radio and has recently published her book, Lobby Life, Inside Westminster's Secret Society. In the next hour, you're going to learn what it's really like to be a journalist inside the lobby pack in Westminster, how the very stories that shape our news agenda are first born, and what goes on behind the scenes before a journalist is ready to publish a story to the world, what it's like coming up against fiery spokespeople like Alistair Campbell inside of the behind closed doors number 10 lobby briefings, how you can make sure that the news that you're reading is both reliable and can be trusted, and so much more. I say this a lot on this podcast, but I am always the least qualified person in the room during these conversations, Uh, but more so today trying to ask precise questions to somebody who has made a career of asking precise questions felt like a lot of pressure. But Carol does a wonderful job of demystifying the world of political journalism. And in doing so, she helps us understand that little bit more about politics and the news and how it all really works. This is a really interesting conversation, and I know it's one that you're going to enjoy. But just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to this podcast right now. There are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way this year, and I don't want you to miss them. But in the meantime, here it is, episode number 129 of Life and Lessons with Carol Walker. So Carol Walker, thank you for being here. Great to be with you. Nice to talk to you, Sean. So today we're going to be talking about one of my guilty pleasures when it comes to things that I find interesting. They're a little bit niche, which is the relationship between politics and journalists, right? Because this world fascinates me. Anybody who's listened to this podcast before will know that because it seems to be quite secretive. And yet it is that kind of machinery that gives us all of the information that we base our lives around. But just before we dive into that, I think it's important to define what the journalist lobby actually is. So can we begin there? What is the political lobby? Well, it's a good question, Sean, because it's a word that's bandied around and it has several meanings. Um, We talk about the lobby um, because it refers to the group of Westminster journalists, political correspondents of all the newspapers, websites, broadcasters, and so on. Um, And the reason they're called lobby journalists is because they have this historic right of access to the lobby, which means the the member's lobby, which is literally um, the, the area just outside the House of Commons. There's also a Lord's lobby as well, I should say, outside the House of Lords. Um, where you're able to go up and chat to MPs, ministers, whoever you like. Um, But because it's in the lobby, it's on lobby terms. And perhaps we'll talk a bit more about that a bit later. But it means that unless the person that you're talking to agrees that you can quote them on the record, what they're saying to you should be done on lobby terms. You can't identify who says it to you. And there is a third... uh, um, there is a third meaning to this, 
which is that when Parliament's sitting, uh, number 10 Downing Street um, provides a briefing for all the lobby journalists um, twice a day when the House is sitting. And that it, it is a lobby briefing, but it gets shortened. And that's also called the lobby. Um, but just to be clear to people who are listening, this is not to do with lobbying in commercial terms. This is nothing to do with the companies who employ people who are called lobbyists uh, who will try to chat to ministers, MPs, influential figures in the political world to ensure that the rules and the laws and the regulations and perhaps the contracts um, work to the advantage of their businesses or their sector of business. Um, lobby journalists are not in it for the money. Um, a few of the very best known are quite well paid. Quite a lot of them aren't. Um, you know, they're in it to get stories, the stories that you read and see and hear right across our media. Let's go back briefly for a moment, because I know that there was a time before the lobby existed, right? And if I remember correctly, um, you say that the, the purpose of the lobby existing in the first place was to keep members of the public out of the Palace of Westminster. People used to be able to walk in and just corner an MP. Is that correct? Where did the necessity for this lobby come from? Yeah. Um, I mean, back in the 19th century, anyone could just wander into the Houses of Parliament and people with certain grievances or campaigns would wander in and collar MPs and ministers. And word got around that you could actually do this and it might be quite a good way to influence what was going on. And so anyone would wander in. And um, there are reports of MPs claiming that it was an absolute nightmare. They couldn't get through Parliament to get to important votes and debates because they were being stopped by members of the public all the time. Um, and originally the authorities, this is um, back in the 19th century, um, tried to ban everyone from uh, certain areas of parliament. And then the Westminster journalists, who in those days, of course, were just representing a handful of newspapers, said, well, look, it's impossible for us to do our job unless we're able to get into Westminster, unless we're able to speak to people unless we are, we are able to properly report on what's going on. And so the sergeant at arms, who's still in charge of uh, commons and lords um, security and procedures, uh, decided that certain tickets should be issued. And that would give those journalists who get them the right to come into Parliament, talk to MPs, to talk to ministers. Um, and that really was the start of the, the lobby pass, uh, which is now a little bit of brown plastic laminate, which is a kind of VIP access all areas pass that gets you into all kinds of the parliamentary estate that uh, are otherwise barred to, uh, apart from parliamentarians and their staff. So it seems like the lobby was born out of pragmatism. There was quite a clear transactional relationship between journalists and politicians to get stories out there, to, to hold the government accountable, whatever it might be. And yet looking from the outside in today, it seems to be a little bit perhaps murkier, if I can use that word, a little bit more secretive. So what is the contemporary purpose of the lobby in your opinion today? Sean, it's a lot less secretive than it used to be. Uh, I mean, I've looked through the old lobby rule book and even back in the early 1980s, these rules were still in place that said uh, that the lobby briefings from the number 10 press spokesperson are secret, uh, that you, as someone who attends them, should not discuss them 
when you might be in the earshot of somebody who might be able to hear what you're saying. You certainly can't report directly on what you have been told. Um, I talked to um, a, a wonderful former political editor of the um, Press Association who was an absolute doyen of the lobby. And he said that when he joined back in the 1970s, he was told that he shouldn't even tell his wife that he'd been to a lobby briefing. He said it was like joining MI5. You know, you weren't allowed to talk about your work outside. Uh, you used to have obscure notices would appear on the uh, notice board of the area in Parliament where journalists work, which is known as the Burma Road, um, which would talk about blue mantle or red mantle. And blue mantle would mean a briefing from the conservative side, red mantle from the Labour side. And you literally weren't allowed to talk about it. Now, you will frequently hear, and when I worked at the BBC as a political correspondent, I would often rush from the number 10 lobby briefing, go on air and say, well, the number 10 press spokesperson has just said that, um, you know, the prime minister has decided he's going to change this rule. He's going to change that law. He's going to lift this regulation or whatever. And the great thing about those lobby briefings is, yes, they are an opportunity for the spokesperson for whoever is the prime minister of the day to put across the messages, the information um, and the detail and the tone that they want to put across. But it's also an opportunity for all the journalists assembled. And you've got a room full of some of the top political journalists in the country. And it's an opportunity for them to question somebody who is very, very close to the prime minister, to the most powerful person in the land. And to pick them up on what they say and, and to question what they say and to question how certain ideas might actually work. And you get this um, almost like a, a tag uh, approach where one journalist will start off with a question or two and then the spokesperson will move on to somebody else who will pick up the point. Well, I, can I just pick you up on what you've just said? So it, it is uh, there is an element of jousting that goes on with number 10 trying to put across their message and the journalists basically try to get a good story. So I'm sure this is something that we all saw during the uh, coronavirus press, brief press briefing, sorry, what you just spoke of there, how journalists will almost work in packs to really uh, drill down on a story to get out the detail and to make sure that the public are being informed. But something that has always uh, mystified me is where these political news stories actually begin life. And this might seem like quite an abstract question, but to somebody like me, you know, I switch on the six o'clock news or I see a front page as I'm walking on a fork or at a petrol station, or I might see a tweet. And by time that has reached me, it is a fully formed story. There's a narrative, there are quotes, there's a minister saying this, it's, it's fully formed. But before it reaches me, it has, of course, gone through lots of different people and lots of different desks. Who decides and how is it decided whether a story does or doesn't have legs? Um, let me just say, um, I, I will answer that point, of course, Sean. But let me just say that during the pandemic, yes, of course, many, many people tuned in and watched those televised news conferences. If you watched those, you would have uh, the prime minister or senior minister scientific advisors, and they would take one or two questions from um, a, a few journalists, maybe six, seven, eight um, journalists. Um, but very often uh, what you will find is that 
you got some limited phrases and answers, often the same answer to a whole series of different questions. And throughout that time, when you had those on the record televised briefings, the lobby briefings for Westminster journalists continued uh, alongside them. Now, they're not on camera. Um, There was a move at one stage to put them on camera, but that eventually got ditched. Um, And again, we can talk about that later if you want. But um, those uh, lobby briefings went on. During the worst of the pandemic, they had to happen online instead of in person. Um, But people were able to ask for details to when the spokesperson would say, well, you know, there's no problem with PPE uh, deliveries. Journalists were able to say, well, hang on a second. I have spoken to this hospital trust. They have got insufficient uh, supplies for the people that are dealing with this national emergency. And journalists that I've spoken to, uh, and indeed I've listened to some of those lobby briefings that were online, will say that they got far more information out of the lobby briefings than they ever did from those rather carefully staged uh, briefings during the pandemic, however useful they may have been in providing direct information to the public. So I think it's important to uh, remember that. Um, when it comes to a news conference or the the stories or the tweets that you see, very often journalists will have been working on those issues for quite some time. So they will know the background to it. They will know um, that a particular phrase used by somebody actually means a lot more than perhaps it would. You often hear a politician say, well, you know, um, you know, what about this change to the law? Well, um, I wouldn't rule that out, but blah, 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 blah. And that actually might be quite significant if they're saying, well, we're open to considering quite a significant change. That actually might be um, something that is quite important. And the, the thing about the lobby journalists is they're not just going along to the number 10 briefings twice a day. They're talking to all their contacts. They're talking to people right across the political parties. Very important when you've got dynamics going along, like we saw recently with the uh, gradual loss of confidence in Boris Johnson's leadership. They'll be talking to all kinds of different members of Parliament from all sorts of different factions, talking to the opposition to find out what they're going to be doing, their tactics and so on. If they're following a big policy story, they'll be um, reading up on many of the of the documents, on the background briefing documents, talking to um, other um, other talking to the advisors of the senior ministers, talking to people who will be directly affected, such as you know people working in the health service or in the unions or in the construction industry or the rail industry, so that they will then come to perhaps a short remark or a short comment and will understand the significance of what is being said. And that, I think, is how you get um, from, as you say, a single tweet or a single comment to, oh, my goodness, that is suddenly a big story. Just to pick up on something you said towards the beginning of your answer there on the difference between the kind of stage managed press conferences that we saw during the pandemic relative to lobby briefings. Uh, You spoke at the beginning of the conversation about lobby terms and the the kind of somewhat anonymity that is applied to information given under lobby terms. 
Is that beneficial in as much as if somebody doesn't need to specifically put their name to a piece of information? Is that how journalists are able to push forward and get more of a story compared to, like you say, the, you know, the free word slogans that we, the public always hear are very different to the actual reality that journalists like you are able to pull out of these spokespeople? Well, obviously, as a journalist, Sean, I'm in favour as much openness and clarity as possible. Um, what happened when Alistair Campbell was press spokesman for Tony Blair uh, is that there were a lot of stories that emerged from off the record briefings. And um, after years of arguments over whether or not the briefings from number 10 should be put on the record, whether we should even be allowed to attribute them to um, a number 10 source. Um, Alistair Campbell decided to put them on the record. He appeared one day and said, right, you can refer to me as a spokesperson for the prime minister. And he put a tape recorder on the table. And until that moment, you hadn't even been allowed to take um, any kind of recording devices into the lobby briefings, which was a nightmare for somebody whose shorthand is as rubbish as mine. Um, So that was a massive, massive change during the time when Bernard Ingham was press secretary to Margaret Thatcher. He fought long battles to prevent any attribution at all in the lobby briefings. And if if we go further back in history, just to explain the background to this, um, in Neville Chamberlain's time in the run up to the Second World War, he would often brief political editors in person, but utterly unattributably. So he would say, well, look, um, I think the negotiations with Hitler and Stalin are going terrifically well and Britain's going to be kept out of the war and everything's going really well. We're going to have um, peace in this country, at least. We're not going to be dragged into another war. And journalists would write those words, but they wouldn't even be attributed to the prime minister. They would simply state um, Britain is going to stay out of the war because negotiations are going on with Hitler and Stalin and they are all going tremendously well. And that, of course, is a really unacceptable state of affairs. But what I would say is if we only ever printed, wrote or broadcast stories or or put them on our social media that we could attribute to someone, well, then half the stories that you read and see and hear wouldn't ever get out because there will always be people who have information, perhaps about wrongdoing, um, perhaps about misbehaviour, who feel that it is in the national public interest for that information to get out, but because of their own position, because of uh, perhaps they even uh, sign rules of their employment, they are not at liberty to disclose those details and they will then only be prepared to do so anonymously. So there, there is a place for unattributable briefings. Uh, the, the, the lobby terms um, is still used in many settings outside uh, the lobby. And I should say an awful lot of the interactions between journalists and politicians now happen not in that member's lobby outside the House of Commons. But, um, well, on other parts of the parliamentary estate, in the bars and the cafes there, but also outside as well over lunches and drinks and so on. So um, there is a balance to be struck here. Um, Many of those really big stories of uh, information that's been revealed by whistleblowers and so on would never have got out 
if someone at the beginning had not been able to give some information to a journalist and said, look, you can't quote me on this. I don't want my name to appear. I'm not the source of this, but you should know that this is going on. And that journalist can then take that information. They're not just going to put it on the front page of their paper or their website or leap in front of the cameras and report it, but they're going to test it out with all their other contacts and anyone else who may be involved. And that is how many of our biggest stories do emerge. I think it's interesting to lean into this idea of leaks. For a moment, it was only yesterday that I saw uh, Dominic Cummings on Twitter, who, as we all know, is somebody who has had a a contentious relationship in number 10 with the press, uh, was speaking in his substack about one of the two Conservative Party membership candidates allegedly being a prolific leaker at their time in office. Um, And it's an interesting one, right? Because leaking has its place in certain angles, right? For example, I imagine the Partygate story, lots of that came about through off-the-record leakings and briefings. Uh, But then I've also heard allegations of government officials almost road-testing policies, right? So throwing an idea out there, having it in the media, and then watching the response before deciding whether or not to, to move forward with a policy. Who benefits when a story is leaked? Uh, well, it depends what the story is. And I, I would also say there's a difference between a, a leak of, which is usually used in terms of, say, an official document that is perhaps top secret, but people think, well, there's something going on here that other people should know about. And, and so perhaps um, officials, advisors, or opponents uh, of a particular move might um, ensure that that document gets into the hands of journalists who they consider will give a fair treatment to the story. And off the record briefing, which is something quite different. Um, I wouldn't necessarily describe that as as a leak. Um, I mean, I should say that, you know, when you look at what Dominic Cummings says, um, obviously he's got his own agenda. Uh, He fell out with Boris Johnson pretty spectacularly. And it's very clear where he's coming from with all of his comments. But certainly it's true that um, there, there is so much media and uh, information is so widely shared um, that I think there are more um, off-the-record briefings and so on going on than ever. It is a part of our political life. You're not always going to be able to get a minister to appear in front of a camera and tell you something directly if, for example, a pol- policy is at an early stage of development. But you may well have, and, and this has been going on for years and years, an advisor briefing a, uh, a, a an outlook that they consider that they think will give a favorable slant to the story, briefing a particular newspaper while the um, Department for Education is considering this big change to um, our education system, uh, and they will sometimes yes put that out there to road test an idea see how it goes, um, see how it goes down. Um, and uh, that can be one way of doing it. And they might even do that before they launch a more official consultation process where there will be a, a formal process for those involved to put in their views on a, on a certain policy change or idea. Now, somebody that we've spoken about already in this conversation is a man who is uh, finding a new lease of life in this world of podcasting with the biggest podcast in the country right now, Alistair Campbell, who I imagine you have had lots of dealings with over the years um, in these number 10 lobby briefings. Now, 
Alistair is painted as quite a fiery character. He may or may not have a the thick of it character based on him. We will never know. But somebody like me in the public, that is how we perceive these spokespeople, right? They're quite fiery. They're willing to push back. They're willing to kind of set the agenda in their favor. And therefore, off the record, behind the scenes, when there's not a live camera rolling, when people aren't on their best behavior, what is it like to really face down a spokesperson like Alistair or any of his contemporaries to really get to the bottom of a story behind closed doors? Well, yeah, I mean, I um, first met Alistair Campbell when um, he was working uh, with Tony Blair when he was opposition leader. And I covered uh, Tony Blair's first general election campaign in 1997 when he came to power. And in fact, um, all three of his election campaigns. So we were on the road with um, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. We were a lot of the time, if I'm honest with you, they were in a separate bus. But certainly I've had many, many, many dealings with him over the years. And he is a forthright character who will tell you what you think. But I do think um, that the, the, the thick of it um, caricature. His daughter apparently loved the idea that uh, that uh, Malcolm Tucker might have been based on her dad and was, was desperate for that to be the case. Um, I'm sure that there is an element in which um, Alistair was an inspiration for that character. Um, but it is, that is a comedy caricature. An enormous amount of the time, Alistair Campbell was actually incredibly helpful, useful, and a really, really, really good source because he was very, very close to Tony Blair. He was with him in all the big meetings, in the cabinet meetings, when Tony Blair was meeting world leaders uh, in the run-up to and, and during the Iraq war and so on. So he was a, a very, very important source. And when he stepped back from uh, lobby briefings, an awful lot of journalists who'd campaign, uh, complained about the fact that he would sometimes lose his temper in a lobby briefing and swear and tell them that they were talking rubbish and that their newspapers were uh, not worth wiping the floor with and so on, um, were then really, really disappointed and complaining that they weren't going to be getting um, as, as, a, as, a, as accurate a, um, a source who would be really in the meetings and could give them as much information about what was going through the prime minister's mind. Um, and what happened was that, um, as I'm sure many people listening will realise, that during those labour years, uh, their very powerful communication skills became a, a problem, an issue for the party. Spin became a massive thing. Everything, every announcement, every story was seen as, well, that's just more spin from the Labour government. And Alistair Campbell was deemed to be um, a significant figure in that. So he took uh, a step back from the daily briefings and eventually um, bowed out of number 10 altogether. And what happened after Alistair Campbell left is that that role of briefing journalists in the regular formal lobby briefings went from being someone who was a special advisor, which means that they were political and could address political stories, to someone who was a civil servant. Uh, who could talk about policy, who could talk about government policy, who could talk about um, the thinking behind government policy, but would not get into party political issues. Um, and that has been a big change. And, th and there was a deliberate attempt to um, find a contrast. And I, I write in, uh, in my book, Lobby Life, uh, about um, the wonderful Godric Smith, who took over doing the daily briefings uh, from 
uh, Alistair Campbell. And um, he arrived and was informed by one of those he was addressing or had, had been having a chat with earlier um, that, that the journalist had been told, we're going to bore you to death with Godric, Godric and more Godric. And he was definitely a marked contrast. He was an excellent uh, civil servant. He was an excellent press spokesman. And uh, you could always be absolutely sure that what you were hearing from Godric was straight and straightforward and accurate. Um, but what you didn't get, what you didn't get are the times when the press spokesman under goading from a room full of journalists would step slightly beyond maybe what he intended to say, and we'd all emerge with a great story. Um, I want to come back to Spin in a minute, but just on this point of kind of big personalities, do you think in this day and age that the the theatre of politics is a feature rather than a bug, right? And we we only need to look at the last few weeks of the uh, the downfall and eventual resignation of Boris Johnson and then the subsequent Conservative Party leadership contest, that this this rolling news coverage where it feels like there is a new story or a new development every hour. How much are those who are briefing the media, trying to get their spin on the story, how much are they aware of the fact that stories need to be gradually fed and there always needs to be a new development to keep that on the first position? Does that make sense? Like to us as viewers, um, politics almost seems quite, and I don't use this word um, too heavily, but quite theatrical. I think politics has always been theatrical. I mean, Look at Winston Churchill during the war. I mean, it was all a, it's a performance. You, you, you've got to convince people that you've got the, the credibility to lead. You've got to stand up in the, and command the respect of, um, the House of Commons. Uh, you, you've got to convince your party, um, that you are the person to lead there. So I think performance has always been there. Um, what has changed is, the pace of the news agenda, um, the days when a journalist could afford to, um, you know, perhaps get in, make a couple of phone calls, have a long lunch, then um, speak to a few people and, and write their story at leisure in time for the next day's newspaper. Um, all our newspaper journalists now uh, are having to provide stories for the websites for their respective uh, outlets, um, there's rolling news, things happen on Twitter, uh, a, a line that you put out one hour might, might change an hour later. And that undoubtedly puts a huge additional pressure, not just on the media, but on the politicians as well, because they know that they can't allow a story to run. They've got to respond, respond as quickly as they possibly can if they want to rebut a story or deny it. You, you can't allow it to run for a day or two or a week. You, you've probably got to try and rebut it, you know, in the next 10 minutes before it's really taken hold. So I think that has made a big change to um, the political world and to the journalists that are covering it. So on this point of spin, uh, there has been in recent months, at least, endless debate around the honesty of politicians and individuals in politics. Uh, and of course, journalists like yourself in the lobby have this this job to discern between truth and perhaps fiction. Um, but as we zoom out and look at the, the wider context that you researched in the book, um, how has the relationship between uh, politicians and the media changed more recently? So are we actually straying more towards spin and away from fact as it feels? Or has this always been part of the kind of game that is played? Well, 
good stories have to be true. They have to be accurate. They have to be factual. Um, I, I think part of the uh, issue at the moment, <clears throat> and I was reading the story today about um, majority of young people get their news on Instagram. Now, I'm not quite sure what sites they're going on on Instagram to get their news. Um, but I mean, there are credible news sites and there are there are others which are um, less conscientious about how they check out stories. Um, I, I know it's very fashionable in certain wings to um, disparage the um, the mainstream media, uh, the, the the main broadcasters and newspapers. Um, but most of those that I know that work on those outlets um, do try very hard to make sure that you know they verify the stories that they're given, that they check them with different sources, that they run them past uh, other people. Uh, and, and, and it is important to be aware of, of that. And I mean, I, I worked as a, a journalist in the BBC for many decades, and there used to be a rule that you could, couldn't run a story unless you had at least two different sources for it, and, and you had to be accountable to that. So I think it, it is um, harder to discern the truth. I think in a way, I'm less worried about you seem to be suggesting that perhaps, you know, standards of journalism have fallen. I'm not sure that they've necessarily fallen in those um, organizations that are, that are up there and, and, and working to proper standards. But I think what we've got is a proliferation of campaigns that try to appear as though they are news websites, when in fact they're simply um, peddling stories, rumors, and so on that we all enjoy, that we all love to read, um, but that may not give the full story. To be more precise on the question, so I, I don't necessarily mean that news organizations are doing less of a job. I guess the question is more, do, no, do news organizations have far more to contend with now since the world of spin was introduced, where you're perhaps not being told the full truth in a briefing. And so you have to really uh, work harder to, to fight to see the, the wood from the trees. Well, look, spin is just a way of trying to shape the narrative. Um, you know, if you are told we're going to set our schools free, we're going to get rid of all the restrictions and limits that are holding back our teachers and our pupils so that Pupils are free to learn whatever they want. You might think that that sounds quite a good idea. If you're told um, we're going to get rid of all the rules and laws and regulations so anyone can walk into a school and teach your kids whatever they like and they don't have to have any qualifications and they can just say what they like, obviously <laughs> no one's going to think that's a good idea. Um, so uh, an idea can be explained in a different way depending on what particular slant you want to put on it. And as a journalist, your job is to work out where the truth is. So I know we've got about 10 minutes left of your time. There are three things I want to cover in that time. Uh, the first, I didn't even plan to ask this, but just as you're telling these anecdotes, it popped into my head. Um, what is a story or a briefing that you have been given that as the words were coming out of somebody's mouth and the cogs were turning in your head of how this relates to the wider context that you thought, my God, this is a really big, significant thing that I've just been told that is going to change a lot. Well, Sean, I think, if I'm honest with you, that the, the biggest stories are the public stories. 
you know, when you're there kind of crouched in number 10 Downing Street, for example, as I was when David Cameron walked out of the front door um, after the result of the EU referendum and announced that he was standing down as prime minister. Rumours had been swirling about it, but he came out into the street. All the cameras, of course, were going. uh, And uh, he stood in front of the lectern and announced that. And it was on a momentous day because no one had expected the or very even the people who were campaigning to leave the European Union didn't necessarily expect to win. So it was a huge day. It was a huge change in our country. And when you're out there then and you watch the prime minister explaining why he's going to leave the job as the most powerful person in the country, you know that you're witnessing history being made. And I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think those are the biggest sorts of stories that I've covered. So if we if we zoom back into the present tense for a moment, uh, there is, of course, right now a, a battle going on between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss to be our next prime minister, next leader of the Conservative Party. Inside of those two camps, as they try and appeal to their electorate of Conservative Party members, uh, we're already starting to see the dividing lines between the two candidates. We're starting to get a sense of where this might go. But I imagine lots of work is going on inside of their teams, working with, working against maybe journalists to try and get their message out there. In the next month or so, as these campaigns stretch on, what kind of work are those teams going to be doing to really try and push their stories to the media? I think the point about this next phase of the contest, Sean, is that each of those candidates knows that the electorate are Conservative Party members. You've got, uh, we don't even know the exact number, somewhere between 160,000 and 200,000 Conservative Party members who are going to make the final choice and cast their votes. So each of those candidates will be trying their best to appeal to that electorate. At this stage, they're not appealing to the wider public. Of course, they've got to try and convince party members that they would perhaps be um, the best person to lead the country. But those party members are their prime target. So they'll be trying to hone their messages to appeal to party members. And we know that party members aren't necessarily uh, entirely representative of the wider public. If you if you look at climate change, for example, um, it is uh, I think it's only four percent of Conservative Party members think that's the most important issue uh, facing the country. Whereas if you talk to the wider voting public, um, it's much higher up their list of, of priorities. Um, so those uh, two candidates will be doing what they at their utmost to win over the party members. And so they'll be looking at some quite traditional bits of media to get their message across in the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail, as well as, of course, um, doing some limited broadcast interviews. Um, but they'll know that those broadcast interviews are um, are a risk. Uh, you know, it's much easier if you can write an article for the Daily Telegraph and you can put it all out in your own words without somebody coming back to you and saying, but hang on, this is complete rubbish. Or hang on, you, you didn't used to think this. Um, why have you changed your mind? And if you have changed your mind, what else are you going to change your mind on? Um, so I, I think we're going to see a lot of that in uh, the coming weeks. And uh, I think we will clearly also see Often what you get is um, what we call outriders for the campaigns. They may not be 
officially sanctioned to do down their opponents. But we've already seen in this contest an awful lot of stories um, appearing in the media. Penny Mordaunt was a particular focus for a lot of um, stories about her approach to um, to trans rights, to pregnancy rights and rights of women and so on. Uh, and those will also be put out there um, perhaps a lot more discreetly, uh, almost never in the uh, official words of the candidates themselves. And what so those kind of planted stories that are either for or against a certain person or a certain idea within politics, who kind of signs those off? We only need to look a few weeks back at Beergate, and I'm not sure if this number is factual, but Alistair Campbell likes to say over and over that there were 13 Daily Mail front covers in a row, day after day after day, until that story was picked up by the Durham Constabulary, until that story was investigated and so on. What power do tabloid newspapers have to actually sway politics rather than just being a, a kind of messenger for politicians? Um, they're probably less powerful than they used to be, um, not least because of what we were talking about before. Uh, people get their news from so many different um, bits of uh, output. Uh, and yeah, the Mirror uh, really, um, uh, sorry, the Daily Mail, when it came to the Beergate story, was really pushing that story when many other newspapers thought that it wasn't really worth pursuing. Um, clearly, it, it went on so long. Uh, and the you know it has to be said that the the mail had photographs. It then had different quotes from people who were there, and Labour had to. And the reason it became a story is that the original explanation um, didn't hold up, and then Labour had to change the story about how many people were there, about whether Angela Raymond was there, about um, whether certain events had been planned, and so on. Uh, and when uh, a party has to change its line, change its explanation, then journalists will re realise that there is perhaps more to this than originally meets the eye. So, yeah, um, the Mail made a lot of running on that. The Mirror made a huge amount of running on the beer, uh, on the Partygate story. Sorry, the Mail made the running on the uh, Sir Keir Starmer Beergate story in Durham. Um, he's now um, not faced any penalties for that. Um, but the mirror was certainly at the forefront of breaking an awful lot of those party gate stories. Um, and they had the pictures. And uh, once you've got that kind of evidence, um, then that, that, that certainly is the makings of a really big story as it proved. So where I want to end, as I have you here today, we've spoken a lot about the logistics of uh, political journalism. Uh, but as I keep touching on for somebody like me, um, all I want really is to be able to separate the signal from the noise to understand the stories that I need to know in a few minutes each day from a good, reliable source in such a way that keeps me informed. And as you've hinted at throughout this conversation, there is this wide plethora of places where we can get our news from now. Um, I certainly don't get my news from Instagram, but I know that people do in my age range. Um, what advice would you give, having been in uh, the, the journalism space for so long now, of when we're looking at a story, when we're looking at a news source, when we're um, trying to dig into the truth of something that we're being told, how can we as readers, as viewers, make sure that the information we're getting is good and reliable? Um, well, I, I could be cheeky and say you can listen to my show on Times Radio. <laughs> but, but OK, I've got the plug in there. Um, uh, we we have. I think what you need to do is to look at the story 
and look at how it is attributed. Is it a senior source has told some journalist that you've never heard of before, um, something that sounds pretty outlandish, and your mate has shared it with you on Instagram and you've got no idea where it originated? I mean, be suspicious. It's a bit like if you're offered a given a, you get a a great offer coming in on uh, on WhatsApp or into your email box. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is, and you're probably being scammed. Um, but if you go to uh, outlets that are respected, that have a history of solid journalism, if you look at our mainstream broadcasters. They've got to stand in front of a camera. They've got to be confident in what they're saying, that they will know. I, I know at the, at the BBC, there was a very, very high bar as to what you would say. On air, you had to be pretty confident that if you were challenged, that was absolutely accurate. Um, because if you weren't prepared to stand by your story, then you really would be in big trouble. So I I think you need to look, if you're interested in the news, if you're interested in politics, look at where it's coming from. Recognize that different outlets come at stories from a different political perspective. So GB News will clearly be much more um, uh, sympathetic to a right wing viewpoint than the Daily Mirror, for example. And learn a bit about those people who are providing your news. And if you've got a, a, a quote there in black and white from a cabinet minister or you've got uh, that cabinet minister in front of a camera saying something, well, then you'll know that is absolutely what certainly what they're saying today. If it's um, some dodgy source on some website that you've never heard of before, well, I'd be a bit suspicious. Amazing. Carol Walker, thank you so much for this. I'm going to make sure that Lobby Life Inside Westminster Secret Society is linked in the show notes. So too will be your show on Times Radio. Am I right in saying it's Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1? Am I getting the plug right? Yeah, that's right. And at the moment, I'm also doing the main Sunday politics show, which is um, 10 to 1 on a Sunday morning. And yeah, if you're interested in all that stuff, here we go. Lobby Life, uh, if you, you can uh, get yourself a copy of that. Um, if somebody wants to go elsewhere to find you, are you anywhere else on the internet? Yep, you can uh, catch up with me on Twitter. Uh, Carol Walker CW is my Twitter handle. Um, so do keep um, across my Twitter feed. Um, listen to me on Times Radio um, from 10 o'clock weekday nights. And uh, at the moment, I'm also doing the main Sunday politics show from 10 o'clock on a Sunday on Times Radio. Great to speak to you, Sean. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.